0: The rest of us will be in John chapter 2 this morning as we uh, continue our series from the Gospel of John. In his book, Authentic Christianity by Ray Steadman, uh, Ray tells... um, about a man who had been an alcoholic for years, but he experienced a dramatic conversion to Jesus Christ. One day, this man was asked by a friend, he said, now that you are a Christian, do you really believe in the miracles of the New Testament? And the, the converted alcoholic came right back and said, well, yes, I do. Um uh, Then he said, Do you believe that story about Jesus changing water to wine? And he said, I sure do. His friend came back and said, How can you believe such nonsense? And then here came the answer. At our house, Jesus had the power to change whiskey into furniture. Jesus has the power. To change things, he has the power to change people. He has the power to change whiskey into furniture. He has the power to change and restore a broken family. He has the power to rebuild a broken marriage. He has the power to change a love for alcohol into a love for God. He has the power to change one's financial situation, financial bondage to financial freedom. Jesus has the power to change things. My question for us is, what has he changed in your life? As you reflect, what has Jesus changed in your life? And then the next question is, what is it that he wants to change in your life. Jesus has the power to change things, and that's exactly what our passage is about in John chapter 2 this morning. And I'm just going to read the whole passage uh, as we we start. So you can turn in your smartphone or your Bible just in case you have a Bible with you, or you can just listen. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples also had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So that's our passage. First, uh, let's talk about the setting of our passage today. Um, we begin in, in John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day... A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Okay. By the way, John is never going to mention the name of Jesus' mother, who was named Mary. Um, He does not seem to mention himself or anybody super close to him like his brother. He doesn't going to mention his brother uh, uh, very often. So, After Jesus was baptized, remember in John chapter 1 by John the Baptist, not John the writer of the gospel. He was baptized near Bethany beyond the Jordan on the um, east side of the Jordan River. And there he met Andrew and he met his brother Peter, and he said, Come and see. He invited them to come with him and start following. And he met Philip, and then he met Nathaniel. And then there was that anonymous disciple, John, the writer of the gospel. And, and we see this in the details. John was there, he, 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 he knew what happened on that day. Um, on this, the third day is after all of this, and then there was this wedding at Cana of Galilee. Verse 2, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus' disciples who were with him. Now, um, it's likely going to be Peter and Andrew and John and Philip and Nathaniel, uh, for sure. Now, where is Cana of Galilee? So here's the map, and uh, if you can see that, Jerusalem is way on the bottom. From where you're seated, I'm not sure you can see that, but I always like to put Jerusalem in the picture. It's kind of the most important city in Israel. It's where the temple was. It's where the religious leaders hung out. And then if you go up north of there, you see the city of Nazareth, so that's where Jesus will be raised. That's where he he spent the first 30 years of his life, pretty much growing up there, in Joseph and Mary's home. Off to the right... That dark area is actually the Sea of Galilee. And uh, then you see Cana. Uh, bet- uh, it's, it's only like eight or nine miles north of Nazareth. So this is a pretty small area, actually. So uh, Jesus has traveled up to Cana, a very small village in, in, in the mountainous area. Now, by mountainous area, I mean 1,700 feet above sea level that isn't very high in, in, in the United States. because like we are over 800 square feet here today above uh, sea level. Um, but when they get to the wedding, we find that there's a wedding snafu, verses 3 and 4, and it's helpful to talk about the customs of the day, the wedding customs of the day, just to kind of refresh uh, this for you. The wedding customs of the day included, typically the parents made the arrangements for a couple uh, who were going to be married, and uh, it was a legal arrangement. And um, after this engagement, it was a formal legal engagement, after this uh, took place, then there was typically around a year of waiting before the actual ceremony Uh, the the wedding and the great celebration. On the wedding day, the groom and his friends made a huge deal out of a, a, a procession to go to the bride's home and to retrieve her and then bring the bride all the way back to the groom's home, usually his parents' home. And after that, it was a time for a great celebration wasn't uncommon that the whole community was invited everybody was invited and during this uh, reception um, it could last for seven days you know think about picking up the bill on the wedding reception for seven days and guess who got to pay for it the groom and his family were responsible for um, for uh, paying for covering all of the expenses, the predicament is is verse three. We already saw when when the wine was gone. Jesus's mother said to him, "They have no more wine." S- like so, <laughs> why why is she so concerned? We we don't know. It sounds like a mother, you know. If, I don't know what your mothers are like or what your wives are like with their kids, but it sounds like a mother, but who, who's getting married? We don't know. Is this a family or is this a friend? Why is Mary so involved in this? But she is. And uh, so she, she says this to Jesus. And um, this was when, when the wine was gone in the first century, at a wedding occasion like this. You know, if, if the wine were gone at a wedding reception, you might think, well, this is a pretty good reason for people to go home now, but not so in the first century. This is a major social infraction for, um, and, and it was a, a great embarrassment, and it brought shame on the family if something like this were to happen, and so Mary, She's concerned about these people. She cares uh, what happens in this situation. Um, And so she takes it to Jesus. I, I don't know why she thinks Jesus should know about this. Why bother him with this problem of the wine? Did she expect a miracle? You know, maybe not. Probably not. In fact, Jesus hasn't done any miracles yet. Now there are some uh, extra-biblical literature that talks about Jesus performing miracles when he was a kid, but it's not in the Bible. Um, The Apostle John says this was the first one. And um, she just is so concerned. And so Jesus responds in verse... Now, think about this too. You know, give cut Mary a little bit of slack here. Jesus is her oldest son, oldest child. They have a large family, as customary. And um, we assume that Joseph is probably dead by now. He does not appear anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John after Jesus was 12 years old in the book of Luke. After that, We don't hear anything about Joseph being around or doing anything. And so Jesus is the oldest son. He's the the go-to person in the family. He's the man of the house. And so Jesus responds in verse 4. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Now, you know, to call your mother woman, that sounds like, that's kind of uncaring, isn't it? It's different. He could have called her mother, but woman would be a very polite, cordial term to address a lady in the first century. But it was a little more formal. It's not like mom, you know. Um, And then he says, why do you involve me? And Jesus is communicating to his mother that they are on different tracks. And Jesus has a role that's different than he had before. And Mary is going to have a role that's different than she had before. Because Jesus is focused now on being about his father's business. He said that when he was 12 at the temple. Jesus has a mission. He has come to do the Father's will, and he is hyper-focused on that mission. He knows why he is here. And he's sort of uh, giving some clues here that his priorities might be different than her priorities for him. And so there's going to be a distinction. And um, he goes on to say, my hour has not yet come. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. This phrase, his hour hasn't come yet, is is a key phrase in, in the gospel of John, because Jesus has a sense of timing for why he is here. And he, as, he, as he goes through his ministry, those, that three-year ministry, he has a sense of the order of things and what his role is. And there are going to be people who try to take him off course, try to distract him, try to stop him from the ultimate end. And he's going to say, my hour has not yet come. It is not time for me There is an hour that's coming. There is a time that's coming. And we'll see it in John chapter 13, verse 1, and we'll see it again in John chapter 17, verse 1. And it's going to be about Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. And God's glory will be revealed in an ultimate way. Jesus has come to do his father's will, to be about his father's business, and that's going to supersede Mary's priorities. But then in verses uh, 5 through 10, we see there's going to be a wedding gift and a changing of roles in verse 5. Mary's role is going to begin to change. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, is she trying to manipulate? I don't think so. She trusts Jesus, but she's not nagging. She's not repeating her request. She's not trying to correct Jesus in any way. She just yields to whatever her son wants. And and she instructs the servants, and I don't even know why she has the ability to, to, to direct the servants. It's got to be a fairly close relationship for her to be able to do that. And so she instructs uh, the servants to do whatever he requires. She wants the servants to follow his instructions. Her role has changed. Jesus is her son, but she recognizes he has a higher calling. In verses six through 10, we see more changed. There's been a changing of roles. Now there's going to be changing of the water. Verse 6, nearby stood six uh, water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. These are pretty big jars. You know, 20 to 30 gallons. I don't know how they moved them. They were stone jars. They were not clay jars because only stone jars could be used for ceremonial washing. Clay jars were considered to be unclean. 20, these are 20 to 30 gallons each, six of them. How much water is that? So the water was used, for this, the normal thing is, so you have this, uh, the wedding guest there. And the ceremonial washings were when your guests came, and uh, there would be a servant who would pour water over their hands before they ate, and then they would pour water over their hands again after they ate. And um, I suppose there was some actual cleaning involved but it was a religious practice uh, that they uh, were involved in. So Jesus gave these instructions in verse 7. He said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Um, Verse 8, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So um, the servants followed Jesus' instructions, and they got to experience a miracle up close and personal. Um, They got to see that Jesus has the power to change things. And they brought the wine to the master, and he is totally surprised that the wine had, he was expecting that the wine would run out. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he was, see, the bridegroom is the one responsible. He's, he's the one to make, make he, he, he's got to provide all of this. And the master of the, banquet, is his job is to supervise, that it all gets taken care of and people get served. And so he he calls the bridegroom aside in verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. So this is just customary. The master of the banquet just talks about what's normal, the way people usually do it at weddings. Let, let everyone drink at first. And so they've had enough that their palates are no longer sensitive to what they're drinking. And then you can uh, keep the cost down a little bit by bringing out the cheaper wine. And then the master of the banquet says, but you have saved the best till now. The best wine was for last. The wine that Jesus Christ, the creator God, provided was the best. The best was for last. Jesus, this is how Jesus works. God saves the best for last. And guess what? The couple received a rather large wedding gift, 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine. It is now theirs, provided by Jesus of Nazareth. So the water was changed. Something else is going to change. And I've just entitled this, The Changing of Covenants. Um, wine is mentioned in the Bible in uh, many different places. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it was a very common beverage of the day. Um, typically, uh, common wine was, was uh, quite low in alcoholic content compared to what you might buy today. Um, it would be watered down, they would, they would make wine, it would be called strong drink, and then they would add a lot of water to it. And it was a common beverage, it had a lot of purposes, it was used for celebrations. It was used uh, even medically, because water was often, had bacteria in it, and a little wine helped take care of stomach issues. But wine is also used figuratively. For the blessing of the kingdom of God. That that in the future, there is going to be great blessing. And um, it's described as, and could be literal, but it's, it's, it's pictured as a great blessing. There is going to be a wedding feast with a... Bridegroom and the bride, and Jesus will be the bridegroom, and his church will be the bride, and Jesus is going to provide everything. The miracle of Jesus turning water to wine depicts more than just a miracle, it portrays what Jesus is going to do. He's going to bring a change to the old covenant. He's going to bring a change to the 613 commandments in the law. He's going to be, bring a change to the way God's people worship God. And they no longer will need to be in Jerusalem and to offer sacrifices because Jesus' blood will establish a new covenant, a new way of approaching God, a new way to worship God. A new wine, not an old wine. In verses 11 and 12, we see the wedding significance. We see the purpose of the sign in verse 11. By the way, what is a sign? Well, thank you for asking. It's a miracle. A sign is a miracle of God. And a sign always has a purpose. At least that's how I'm talking about a New Testament definition of what a sign is, and especially the way John uses it here. It always has a purpose. Jesus did a lot of miracles, and um, John just picks seven in the book of of, uh, John. He only describes seven signs or seven miracles. John said, you know, there are a lot more than this, but... He's just picked seven. Why? So that they might believe that Jesus is God's son. So that they might believe. And so this miracle is given. And what a sign does, and here we go, a sign in the the Bible authenticates the message and the messenger. God often used this when he was doing something new and different, when he was bringing change. Uh, when, he, when he wanted to get people's attention, he would send a messenger, and that messenger would have the ability to do miracles in, on behalf of God, and it was to draw their attention. Wake up, pay attention. God was saying, I'm about to do something. And that's, that's why there are so many miracles in the life of Jesus, because God wanted people. To pay attention and that they should start listening to Jesus because God is at work. That's why in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul writes the Jews seek for signs and the Greeks seek for wisdom. It's their approach to knowledge. Jewish people are looking for revelation from God. And one of the ways is when they see a sign from God, a miracle from God, it draws their attention to listen to the messenger. That's why people came up to Jesus and said, show us a sign. That's why people came up to John and said, show us a sign. Because that was just wired into their culture. In John chapter 2, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. This this miracle was given so that the people of the nation Israel would start paying attention, so that the people of of Israel would listen to Jesus. They would begin to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed one. And by the way, Jesus' miracles always had a purpose. They always had a purpose. He never did any... Miracle that was fanciful, you know, just just to see if he could, just to be cool. It was it, there was always a clear purpose. Um, and so, this was the first sign through which he revealed his glory. It was just about giving people a glimpse of what God is like to show his power, to display who God is and what he can do. And ultimately, his glory will be revealed when he dies on the cross and he pays the penalty for the sin of the world, when he's resurrected on that first Easter Sunday, proof of his victory over sin and death and Satan. The significance for us, Oh, his disciples believed in him, um, and that was that was the win. His disciples, Andrew and Peter, John, Philip, and Nathaniel, they see this, they get this experience, and they believe. The significance for us, pretty simple. Jesus is in the transformation business. That's what he does. He's in the reclamation, transformation business. He turned water into wine. He changed the old covenant into the new covenant. He can turn whiskey into furniture. He changed me from an atheist to here I am. How has he changed you? And more importantly, how does he want to change you in the future? John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to uh, the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus brings change, and when we follow him, we walk in the light. We walk in the truth. We walk, we live with clarity about what God wants. And when we follow him, we are not in darkness. When we, when we do our own thing, when we ignore God, we are living in darkness, spiritual darkness. When we walk in the light, we walk away from sinful patterns. patterns. Jesus change, changes things, and Jesus wants to change us. He wants to transform us into the best version of ourselves. Have you, have you gotten there yet? The best version of yourself. And that's the way he designed us. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 28 and 29, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, in all circumstances, God works for For good for those who love Him. Um, Not all things are good, are they? You know, whatever your circumstances are right now, God can work good. In fact, that's what He wants to do. As we follow, as we walk in the light, And then in verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, that's the good that God wants to do in our lives. He wants to conform us, transform us, change us to the image of his Son. Now, you and I were created in the image of God. That's an amazing thing. You are not a monkey or a gorilla. You were created in the image of God. Sin has marred that, has messed it up. We are not perfect people. And yet God wants to work in our lives to restore that image back to where it needs to be. And it's in the image, in fact, it's going to be better Adam and Eve. It's going to be in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God desires to transform our character to be more and more just like Jesus's character. So what what does transformation look like? What, What if God actually changes us to be more like Jesus, what would that look like? And I think the Apostle Paul gives us some clues in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23. It's a passage you probably know well. And the Apostle Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and um, peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control against such things. There is no law. And so... um, If we would be conformed to the image of Christ and walk in the power of the Spirit, God would be molding us and changing us. And the fruit of this kind of life, the outgrowth, the result of this changing character is that we would become more loving people. I don't know about you, but I need to become more loving. We would would become... um, more joyful people, not just being happy, but joy on the inside, not dependent on the circumstances on the outside. Uh, We would grow in being able to have peace in the inner person. We would grow in our ability to put up with other people, to cut them some slack more often rather than maybe going off on them. Or criticizing them. We would grow in our ability to be kind to people. We would actually grow in goodness, becoming more like Jesus. We would grow in our ability to be faithful, to walk with Jesus faithfully. We would grow in gentleness. We would grow in self-control when jesus transforms us when we put our lives and resources into his hands when we offer ourselves to god when we offer our bodies to god when we when we give him our heart and our mind when we place all of our material possessions all of the resources whether they're material or not when we place them into his hands, when we bring before him our own sin, when we're honest, Jesus transforms us when we do whatever he tells us. That was in our story. Remember that in in John chapter 2 and verse 5? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, and they did. And there was a transformation that happened when they brought this request to Jesus, and they followed his instructions. Jesus changed water to wine, the best for last. And he can change you when you put everything at his disposal, everything into his hands. So we've... uh, Jesus brings change. We end our passage with um, verse 12, the change of venue, which is not quite as exciting. But let's look at that. After they went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So Cana, located in kind of a mountainous area, 17, 1800 feet above sea level. And um, they went down to Capernaum. Capernaum is 682 feet below sea level. Now, they went to Capernaum, which would be like uh, on a map. It would be north and east a little bit. And... um, but they had to go down because of the. that's how they talked about travel. It was about, do I go up or do I go down? They often talked about when they went to Jerusalem, they went up because it was a high point. Did you know that the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum is right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is the lowest uh, freshwater lake on earth. And so Capernaum is just right there on the edge of that lake they went down jesus's mother traveled with him jesus's brothers traveled with him who are they well mark chapter 6 gives a list of his brothers james joseph jude and simon they did not believe yet but they're hanging out with their brother sometime they're going to think he's a little off course and sometimes they're going to try to direct him on their course, but they're just going to hang out. And then there were the disciples, and we know who they are, at least five of them. And They have come to believe. And so we're going to leave them in Capernaum to hang out a few days. Now, Capernaum is going to become the headquarters for Jesus. It's uh, pretty much, excuse me, where Peter and... and uh, Andrew had their fishing business. James and John had their fishing business there. And so they have access to the lake very quickly by boat from, from Capernaum. And Jesus will hang out there. He'll, he'll go out to do ministry in Galilee in the area, and then he will come back to Capernaum uh, in the future. The good news is, is that Jesus changes things. He changed water to wine. And, um, He changes whiskey to furniture. And he can change you to become the best version of yourself. And it's just going to be about you. Can you trust Jesus each day to help you become the best version of yourself? Let's stand for prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for um, the story we have about Jesus changing water to wine. We're grateful to know that Jesus has the power to overcome anything. He has the power to change things, He has the power to overcome sin, He has the power to overcome failure. He has a power to make things beautiful that have become ugly. God, may we be willing to place our lives into his hands as our Lord. May we seek to follow him and follow his directions, his instructions from his word. Cause us to be mindful of what you want to do in our lives. Help us to entrust ourselves into your hands that we might become the best version of ourselves because we're more like Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.